everyone, it's Daisha. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away called Houston, I interviewed some guys from the Contus Vocal Ensemble, and our chat was all about the democracy of chamber ensembles, how each part in the music is of equal importance. So basically, it's controlled anarchy, but with singing. Um, these guys are fabulous, they're super entertaining, and I'm actually just going to leave it at that and let the episode tell you the rest. It's set for to remind you to subscribe to, rate, and review The Classical Classroom wherever you listen to us. Okay, here we go. My name is Daisha Clay. I'm the audio librarian here at Classical 91.7. While I'm a real librarian, I have a deep, dark secret. I know very little about classical music. I grew up listening to rock. And I know something about jazz. But when it comes to classical... But I really want to learn. So, every week on this show, a classical music expert will give me a piece of classical music they think I should know. And then we'll discuss it. Come learn with me in the classical classroom. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Classical Classroom. I'm Daisha Clay, and here today with me are two members of the Contus Vocal Ensemble. Uh, Contus is a men's vocal ensemble out of Minnesota, which, as their Tiny Desk Concert description on YouTube says, is a weird vocal vortex, which is basically the choral center of the U.S. Uh, Aaron Humble and Paul Rodoy are both tenors from the group. Aaron is a singer, a teacher, and a conductor. He's performed all over the U.S. and the world. He's been on Performance Today and a Prairie Home Companion. Uh, and you have a Texas connection, too, because you live part-time in Dallas, don't you? That's true, yes. My husband lives in Dallas, and so I I spend the time uh, commuting between the two cities whenever I can. And your two cats who have adorable names, what was it? Chopstick and toothpick. Nice. (laughs) And uh, Paul Rodoy has performed and recorded as a soloist with many ensembles. He's worked with Bobby McFerrin, the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra. Uh, He's premiered work by Nico Muley, and he's also a composer. Welcome to both of you. Hi, thanks. So what are you guys going to be teaching me about today? Well, we'd love to talk to you about using chamber music and the chamber music model in vocal music, which is what we do in Contus. Okay. So... What is it that distinguishes chamber music from other kinds of music, of other kinds of, say, classical music to start with? Well, the main distinction uh, would be two. Uh, The first is that the ensemble is usually a smaller, more intimate ensemble. And the second thing is that there is no conductor or music director. Uh, And people are very used to seeing string quartets or a woodwind ensemble, a piano quintet, Uh, playing with just the musicians. Uh, But when it's vocal music, you always expect to see a conductor, you know, unless we're talking about barbershop quartets or something very small. Right. So it's kind of a unique way to make music for a vocal ensemble, but uh, it has been a really rewarding way to make music for us. So isn't it true, I mean, it's kind of a nice sentiment that Everybody kind of shares equal responsibility, and nobody is a, a special snowflake. And, and you know, the, I'm sure that, like, artistically, that must be an interesting experience. But but isn't it true that in like groups of humans, somebody always kind of winds up 
leading a group. Yes. Well, okay. So that's a very good point. And one of the things that we do to kind of not combat that but make it more efficient um, is to have different processes in place to uh, keep things rolling and keep things moving and make sure that people's voices are heard. Okay. So if you just take a rehearsal period, right, in a regular choir, the conductor would kind of lead that rehearsal period. Um, while in Contus and in other chamber ensembles, there is a sort of a facilitator per piece. So uh-huh. someone is leading the rehearsal process, but they're not necessarily making all the decisions that we have to go by, right? Uh-huh. So if someone says, I think this breath would work really well here, or I think this voicing is, needs to change up, then the producer of that piece or the leader of that piece, then facilitates that conversation so that ultimately we end up with something that we all agree on and we can move forward with. So it's more about facilitating than it is like leading, you know? Okay, okay. And that was Paul, by the way, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, that's Paul. Yeah. <laughs> and so and so basically what that means is that there's someone in the room maybe that hasn't spoken and that, and the producer can turn to that person and say, you know, what... Well, you're an expert in this field, but you haven't said anything. So, like, what do you what do you think about this? And it helps uh, make sure that everyone's voice is heard. And the other thing is that's really good is that we all know each other really well. Yeah. Which happens in a smaller group. So mm-hmm. you can tell when someone kind of wants to say something but hasn't yet. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, it's actually a lot of, I don't know, personal dynamics that have to be vetted out as you're yeah. working on this. So, So having personally worked at, like, co-ops and in public radio and, you know, the places where, where people's voices in an organization are, are individually important. I can understand how kind of on a political level, an organizational level, that might be beneficial. But how is this beneficial to the music? Like, how, how do we hear the democracy in the music? I would start by saying that... And this is Aaron, I, by the way. This Sorry. is Aaron, okay. yes. Here in Minnesota, we have no shortage of special snowflakes. Um, <laughs> we have a lot of snowflakes. And, uh, you know, what I, I suppose the way we like to think about it is that in Contus, we would have nine special snowflakes. Okay. Not that nobody is, but that everybody is. Gotcha. And so in the process of organizing the company, we, we do have three singers who are elected by a vote every year to be part of an artistic council and sort of spearhead different leadership roles. I see. I've heard that in, in, at Apple, they have this term of a directly responsible person. <laughs> so like sort of who is at the end of the line. Uh-huh. Gotcha. So that's really where the benefit starts okay. is in the programming itself. You have nine sets of trained and critical eyes looking at a program and putting it together and saying, you know, I I don't know that the narrative that we want to tell holds up here. <laughs> right. And we need to look at this or maybe we need this. And then by the time the process is over, the program has gone through a lot of revisions. And by the time it has a first performance, it's so different from where it started, but it is so much stronger than where it started. And then the same thing could be said about individual pieces of music we assign a producer to do that initial score study and language research and performance practice research that a conductor would do. Mm. And they bring that into the first rehearsal and we put the piece together. And then once the piece sort of is standing on its own legs, then everybody is welcome to weigh in. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's when things are are changed and and things go from one person's interpretation to another 
until really it's, uh, you know, sort of the art of consensus building. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I know that at one point when we had hired a new staff member in our office, that person didn't really understand that in one piece of music there might be musical decisions that were put forth by nine different singers. Like, they just couldn't wrap their mind around that. You know, like, isn't this piece of music one person's vision? But it's really not. It's really yeah. the vision of everybody that's in the room. And, and you know, sometimes people have more to say, yeah. depending on what genre it is. Uh, you know, I, I don't have a lot of experience in popular music, so when we are in that realm, you know, people don't turn to me and say, Aaron, what do you think? Because they know that that's not <laughs> right. my thing. Right. So is there a, a good example of like a piece that we could hear where you can really hear that shared vision coming across into like into a working whole? Well, okay, so that's a good segue into the fact that we do a lot of new commissioning as well uh -huh. uh, because in a men we're, we're a men's ensemble and the amount of repertoire for men's ensembles is much smaller to the regular you know mixed choir with sopranos and altos and tenors and basses uh -huh. um, so one of our things that we like to do is add to the repertoire so on our newest album a harvest home we actually have a piece called eventide right at the end of the album that exemplifies this because all that aaron was saying uh plays into a new piece of music because it's never been done before. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I produced the piece when we premiered this work, and we had sung a piece by Byron Adams before. He's a, actually a musicologist out of Riverside, California, UC Riverside. He studied a lot of English music, the music of Vaughn Williams, and we sang this little piece of his that was so perfect. It was just this tiny little two-and-a-half-minute piece that is so brilliantly constructed. And so when we commissioned him, it was for a concert about Dvorak. Mm. And it was sort of this serendipitous thing where we found out that Byron had studied with Carl Husa, who uh, had studied with Dvorak's teacher. Mm -hmm. And it was like this lineage right from Dvorak. And it was, it was just sort of magical. Wow. So we were already, you know, pretty invested as a group in this project because we'd done all of this Dvorak and then we're putting this concert together about Dvorak and all of the people that he sort of influenced. We liked Byron Adams' music, knew he was a musicologist, knew he'd write something that would be really well-informed. And then we find out that, you know, like, he's like the, the great-grandson of Dvorak's musical lineage. And that, you know, so that was amazing. Wow. That's very cool. So one of the things that, you know, we always try to do uh, by default, the producer sort of starts leading the piece, you know, giving the first breath and getting everybody to come in. But as soon as possible, we want to give away opportunities for leadership when the the producer's part is not important, when the producer's part does not have the melody or doesn't have, like, the moving notes that resolve. You know, thinking about that piece in particular, I had one of the baritones start the piece uh, because it just worked better for him to set the tempo. And then um, I took over and sort of led the opening phrase. And then at the end of that, I'm seeing the score in my head, so I would say the end of the first page, the baritones have a suspension resolution, you know, ba da da and uh, it would have made no sense for me to lead that because I'm not singing it. So, like, that 
you know, once I hand that control over to somebody else, then I have to, you know, allow them to interpret with their own musical sensibilities. So, can you guys explain to my totally untrained ears what shared vision is being expressed in this in this particular piece? It's a little, um, I guess, another way to put it is like uh, the game of telephone. <laughs> yeah, like you you pass it along to someone else, and they have the opportunity to really choose where the next turn goes. Yeah, and then you pass along to somebody else, um, and then in, ultimately you all have an equal say in what weird sentence you put together. <laughs> so you're kind <laughs> you know? of like working together as like a flock of birds, almost. I don't know why this analogy came up, but but like you know, birds sort of instinctively communicate to each other where we're going to fly now and then they kind of just go that way together that's actually really really good because yeah. because especially for contus with the amount of rehearsal we we rehearse five days a week five hours a day wow um, when we are rehearsing you know because it's our full-time job uh-huh. so we have the time to <laughs> to become a flock of birds yeah you develop that sensitivity right we'll instinctually figure out well there are some things that we need to figure out in rehearsal obviously it's a lot of rehearsal because we don't have a director but there are things like when exactly to put the T on at the end of a phrase mm-hmm. um, that, that kind of becomes instinctual with the nine of us over time so I'm I'm beginning to understand how as an artist as a, as a singer you know this this kind of being a special snowflake among other special snowflakes can be sort of freeing. You're kind of trusting the control in the hands of other people and seeing where they take your creative vision and vice versa. But do you largely struggle with that or do you enjoy it? Is it, I mean, different people have different personalities. Some people enjoy following, uh, but it sounds like you're a group of leaders leading each other. Yeah, th- uh, this is Paul. I-, I think that it's both. Yeah, it's very freeing at times because you're able to, you agree with what something has been said, and and you decide on something that maybe a director with one viewpoint wouldn't have decided on, uh-huh. and yet it's very musical. It really works. But then you also have to trust, and this is the really hard part. Uh-huh. You have to trust when you don't believe in something, and eight or even five other people do. Oh, wow. And that is yeah. really, really hard because sometimes... And you have to do it anyway. Like, right. right. Well, that's, <laughs> that's why it's, be, it's basically consensus. So we have to agree that the majority believes that this is going to work. Yeah. And it's something as simple as a breath here. But then you could be like, but that, that doesn't really work with the, the way that the poem says itself to me. You know, mm-hmm. and then everybody else says, but I, I see it as different, you know. And you can literally, at the end of that conversation, say... We, I'm just going to disagree and we'll continue. But the other great thing about it is we tour and we perform, you know, 60 to 80 concerts a year. Mm-hmm. So after concert seven, you know, somebody can bring that up in a pre-concert rehearsal. So somebody can say, okay, I tried it, you know, six times now. Uh-huh. And for some reason, it's, it feels weird to me. Can we try it the other way just for one concert and see? Yeah. You know? It sounds like most of the time this kind of plays out to everyone's benefit. I mean, you can that comes across clearly in, in your music. But can you talk about sometimes when this 
this sort of shared leadership approach has failed musically? <laughs> I don't know if I would say it's ever failed musically. Okay. Um, because with nine uh, good musical minds in the room, mm -hmm. like somebody is always going to have the right idea. Mm. I, I really believe that. And I've, I've been with Contus for 10 years and I've seen a lot of different singers come through the group. You know, when I started, there's only one other person in the room now that was there on my first rehearsal. Mm -hmm. And there's something that is exactly the same. Even though the cast of characters is changing, there is something that is Contus that is not Aaron and Paul and our seven colleagues. It's, it's sort of greater than the sum of its parts. Right. Just taking a little break from my conversation with the guys from Contus to deliver this very important nutrition information about the Classical Classroom podcast. It is 100% BPA-free, vegan, gluten-free, and soy-free, fair trade and organic, and contains only natural flavors. It's made without preservatives and requires refrigeration after opening. Those who have allergies to fun and inappropriate clapping may want to consult a doctor before listening to The Classical Classroom. Most doctors recommend giving a gift to The Classical Classroom and an amount of your choosing at classicalclassroomshow.com by clicking on the pink tip jar thingy at the top. I can't take credit for that information. That's just science, people. Also recommended, the website stylings of New Y. They made our website and can make one for you, too. They can also help promote your business. Check them out at classicalclassroomshow.com slash NW. That's N as in new and W as in Y. And now back to my conversation with Contus. I, I think one of the biggest challenges is as a singer, um, you know, whether it's an opera oratorio or even in a choir, there's there's basically one person who's allowed to criticize you, and that's the conductor. You yeah. know, the conductor can say you're dragging, you're you're fast, you're flat, you're sharp. I can't understand your diction. Mm -hmm. Whatever the conductor can say anything to you, but in Contus, all of your colleagues can say that. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's yeah. really kind of alarming sometimes for people to come into a rehearsal and see me turn to another singer and say, you're flat on that C, uh -huh. you need to be higher because you're the fifth. Yeah. And that's just the truth, you know? It's just <laughs> right. me delivering the information. And I think all professional music would be better if musicians would put their egos aside mm -hmm. and free themselves to have those discussions. You must develop such a thick skin when you're when you're kind of dealing with that. I mean, I think it's it's hard for anyone to to accept artistic criticism because you know your art comes so from you you know your your essence your your heart and and to have people critique it in i'm imagining not always the most polite way <laughs> you know yes i mean let's get the, to the, you it it can but if it serves the music mm -hmm. then people are open to hearing it yeah. Everybody has to learn how to communicate in that environment. Uh -huh. You know, I grew up near Cleveland and Paul has spent a lot of time in New England, so we speak more directly than a lot of people <laughs> do here in the upper Midwest. Right. So we've both had to yes. learn how to put our, you know, kid friendly and uh northern friendly uh 
guards on, you know, and, <laughs> and perhaps deliver things with a bit more grace than mm-hmm. you do in Cleveland. You just kind of throw it out there. But um, <laughs> if it serves the music, I really think people will be receptive. And mm-hmm. isn't that better than singing night after night with a colleague who is singing a wrong note or right. singing flat and not being able to turn to them and say, just so you know, you're singing a wrong note here. You should fix it. Yeah. You know, and that's not like, oh, look how smart I am. I'm better than you. It's yeah. let's do let's do what the composer wanted, and then it will be even better. And let's make the best music we can. Yeah. Well, so, and and it's kind of like you are being honed as a performer and as a listener through this process. That's that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I I think that there, this is a distant relative to a, what what is happening to a lot of major corporations around. Mm-hmm. In the world, you know, we've seen so many amazing studies about the the fascinating changes that Google or Apple or whatever have made. I mean, I don't know if I think it was I remember reading something about maybe it was Pixar, but um, Steve Jobs at one point like put everything that anyone ever really needed outside of their cubicle in the center of the building. And that included like bathrooms yeah, and, and everything. So people had to communicate with each other and then ideas were exchanged. It's the same thing. If you're alone, then your ego will boost because you have to have a boosted ego in order to survive. Mm -hmm. But if you're with people and it's really not about you, Mm -hmm. it makes it about whatever it is that's outside of you. And that's the music that we work with. Yeah, I heard uh, an interview with um, one of the higher ups at Google talking about how when the company first began, they would basically they had this board. And whenever they had a, a problem that they, they couldn't solve, they would put it up on this board, and it was a board that everyone passed every day. And so people who had come up... <laughs> it's like Goodwill Hunting, yes. the movie. <laughs> <laughs> it is. How you like them apples. Um, yeah. And so, like, yeah, people... But it would it would be everybody from the CEO to, you know... The janitor, like Goodwill Hunting, it would come across <laughs> exactly. it and, and would come up with solutions to these problems. And he was saying that that is exactly how they got ahead, was by yeah, being open to everybody's creative vision. It's true. And, and I mean, even speaking about companies, that, that's how we work as a company as well. I mean, it's important to have all of those different uh, viewpoints. So. I was listening to your um, your Tiny Desk concert, and the the first song that you sang, I was kind of like, oh, this is a very nice piece. It, it, it sounded something that I would kind of expect for for a a group of vocalists to sing together. But the next song that you sang was uh, an Era Rockman song, the guy who did the soundtrack <laughs> mm-hmm. for Slumdog Millionaire. Yeah, and it was so. Interesting. I was like, and I was like, what is happening right now? Can you talk about your your range? Like, why why choose that? Uh, what? What is it that kind of makes a contus 
piece? That's a great question. Uh, this is Paul. And I think that uh, going back to Aaron, what Aaron said about programming, how if it doesn't fit the narrative, then we don't use it. Uh-huh. Um, in the op- in another way to think about it is if it's good music, then we use it. Yeah, okay. So it doesn't really matter what genre. Yeah. It really matters about the narrative. So say we have a narrative that, uh, you know, just like, I don't know, a book or whatever. There's there's a narrative throughout the story that makes you want to continue, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe we have a narrative from birth to death, okay? And then toward the end we have, toward the end of that narrative, we have three pieces about, you know, moving on from this life. But we, we actually had that in a program four or five years ago, and it included a piece from, like, from Billings, from early American music, mm-hmm. to an arrangement of a Dave Matthews tune, mm-hmm. and then a brand new piece by Malcolm Douglas, a composer and arranger in the United States. And those three pieces together really uh, fed the narrative in a really cool way, and people mm-hmm. got it. But they were three completely different pieces. They had nothing yeah. to do with each other independently of one another. But it, but together, they, they made up that important aspect of that narrative, and the same thing goes. So that's why we have a bunch of different styles and genres is because we program that way. Yeah. And we want to be open to all styles of music and really allow the audience to hear some music that is easy for them to hear and receive, mm-hmm. uh, but also introduce them to, to some new things that they may fall in love with yeah. and also challenge them a little bit. You know, we we play everywhere from you know, Houston Friends of Music, which is a very astute crowd, Lincoln Center, which is a very astute crowd. But we also were in Parkersburg, West Virginia this year in this little college sort of gymnasium auditorium, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with a largely, uh, you know, working class community. And and that and the same program can speak to all of those different audiences. Mm-hmm. And, you know, classical music has been this thing that's elite and exclusive. And, you know, for all of the people that spent time uh, trying to make it that way, I would love to, you know, back over them with my car because <laughs> they have done a great disservice to classical music yeah. because, you know, Mozart was popular music in his day. Mm-hmm. And maybe Mozart's never going to be playing on, you know, Hot FM 101 anymore. But we shouldn't take classical music away from anybody. Absolutely. You know, I, I love the idea that music, it's more important that music shares uh, passion, uh, heart, sort of a, an essence uh, when you're putting, you know, your programs together. And when you're putting together, I don't know, your playlist on your iPod or whatever. But it's, it is modern technology that kind of, I think, has allowed us as listeners and you guys as a performing group to be able to have access to all kinds of different music and to kind of make choices about what you put into your shows um, based on what I, I would I would say we're very kind of intellectual and subtle and nuanced choices instead of going, okay, well, this this stuff is in this key and this is in this key. You're like, no, um, this Lady Gaga piece and this Mozart piece go together because, you know, whatever you decide. That will be on our next program. <laughs> <laughs> Please do that. We hope. <laughs> but yeah, how, how has technology influenced your work? Has it? I don't know. This is a totally random question. It just came up. 
Oh, it absolutely has. I mean, we do every year we do a cover show where we uh, we do the same programming that we usually do. So we bring in different pop and rock tunes, either recently or you know way, from way back when um, yeah. that we want to cover in some fashion. Either we want to, and then we have a band you know behind us and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that uh, technology needed for that sort of music we use, and it influences us and the way that we think about the music that we do. Mm-hmm. You know, we will sing Mozart in our more classical touring program, but that'll somehow be influenced by, you know, the Beck song that we arranged last <laughs> year. So that's the other thing is it just builds on itself the more that we practice and the more that we work on and the, the different types of music. But we also are able to, you know, look up on our phones the historical background of this piece mm-hmm. or we'll we'll figure out you know a better metronome app than the one that we current currently using i mean technology is hugely influential in in every music including classical yeah. and just from a research perspective you know the resources that are available now online are just incredible we're, we're putting together now a program of Latvian, Lithuanian, and Estonian music, mm-hmm. looking at how music uh, played a role in the fall of communism in uh, the Baltic states, because mm-hmm. it was the way that people kept their, their heritage alive. And the last time we did a program with some of this music, we were a little light on the Lithuanian repertoire. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to find somebody who runs a Lithuanian music archive and got in touch with someone who was super enthusiastic, and if they didn't have it in a men's version, he would just make one and send it to me. So we've <laughs> added like three pieces of Lithuanian repertoire to this program, you know, because I found this person on the internet. That's you know, so cool. 20 years ago, that, that wouldn't have been possible. I would have had to get on a plane, fly to Lithuania, and dig through archives. Right. So... You know, to have that repertoire available to us now just, you know, through a few clicks of a mouse mm-hmm. or touchpad these days is oh, amazing. Yeah. No, it's it's it's, really it's cool. crazy when it when it comes to music. I mean just just how it's opened the world up that I can I can go to my computer and, and go to your SoundCloud page and check your stuff out. When I was a kid, I couldn't do that. I mean, that's right. It's true. You know, (laughs) it's very true. (laughs) And we get email and Facebook messages from people, literally all over the world. Mm -hmm. You know, just the other day, to my personal page, I got a message from some guy in Hungary, who was telling me that he really liked my voice. (laughs) (laughs) And that's cool. That's amazing. That's super cool. Well, Aaron Humble and Paul Rudoy of Cantus. I said it wrong at the beginning. (laughs) Contus. <laughs> um, nice. <laughs> thank you so much for being on the Classical Classroom today. It was really awesome to talk to you guys. Yeah, thanks so much. It was our pleasure. All right, everyone, that does it for this episode. For more episodes, go to classicalclassroomshow.com. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on all the social medias. Thanks to the home of Classical Classroom, King FM, where we actually have to move. If you want for a Classical Classroom to continue having a studio to record out of, consider donating to King's Capital Campaign by going to king.org slash the campaign. Thanks to the birthplace of Classical Classroom, Houston Public Media. Thanks to Aaron Humble and Paul Rudoy of Contus for being on the show. Thanks to the official sponsor of Spring and Summer in the Pacific Northwest, Sunny Sunglass Shack. We're open 20-ish hours a day, just like your eyes. Thanks to me for saying words, but most of all, thanks to you for listening. We'll catch you next time.